Good evening. Let's turn in the Word of God to the book of Zephaniah. Zephaniah. Perhaps we should have sung the books of the Bible before I made that request. Zephaniah. Your Bible likely doesn't naturally fall open to Zephaniah. Probably you're more accustomed to have it open to the Psalms or to John or some such beloved portion of the Word of God. But we remind ourselves that 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for a number of things that 2 Timothy goes on to explain. So we want to read tonight from Zephaniah. I'm going to give you the whole book this evening. Not in detail, but I intend to do that because it sets the stage for something wonderful that God did in history. A revival that happened under King Josiah, and as a preview of coming attractions, Lord willing, on Wednesday evening, if the Lord hasn't come yet, and assuming we're well and everything's normal, we're going to be looking at Josiah's revival. And so we consider this book as what led, in part, in the Lord preparing the nation for that revival. Zephaniah chapter 1 and verse 1. The word of the Lord which came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will utterly consume everything from the face of the land, says the Lord. I will consume man and beast, I will consume the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, and the stumbling blocks along with the wicked. I will cut off man from the face of the land, says the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off every trace of Baal from this place, the names of the idolatrous priests with the pagan priests, those who worship the host of heaven on the housetops, those who worship and swear oaths by the Lord, but who also swear by Milcom. Those who have turned back from following the Lord and have not sought the Lord nor inquired of Him. Be silent in the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is at hand, for the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has invited His guests, and it shall be in the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes and the king's children and all such as are clothed with foreign apparel. In that same day I will punish all those who leap over the threshold, who fill their master's houses with violence and deceit. And there shall be on that day, says the Lord, the sound of a mournful cry from the fish gate, a wailing from the second quarter, and a loud crashing from the hills. Wail, you inhabitants of Maktesh, for all the merchant people are cut down. All those who handle money are cut off. And it shall come to pass at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish the men who are settled in complacency, who say in their heart, The Lord will not do good, nor will He do evil. Therefore their goods shall become booty and their houses a desolation. They shall build houses but not inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards but not drink their wine. The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hastens quickly. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. There the mighty men shall cry out. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation and desolation, 
a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and alarm against the fortified cities and against the high towers. I will bring distress upon men, and they shall walk like blind men, because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust, and their flesh like refuse. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath. But the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy. For he will make speedy riddance of those who dwell in the land. Gather yourselves together, yes, gather together, O undesirable nation, before the decree is issued, or the day passes like chaff, before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you. Seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth who have upheld his judgment. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. It may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Now the theme of the book of Zephaniah we find in verse 14. The great day of the Lord is near. That phrase, the day of the Lord, is sort of a code word in prophetic speech in the Bible. It occurs hundreds of times. Sometimes it's just called that day. And Zephaniah actually, more than any other book, really focuses on the day of the Lord. Now sometimes when the scriptures talk about the day of the Lord, they're thinking of a near judgment that's going to come upon the nation. And much of Zephaniah is devoted to things that were going to happen to the southern kingdom of Judah in the 7th century B.C., very late in their history. Specifically, Zephaniah is prophesying around the same time as Nahum and Habakkuk and the early ministry of Jeremiah. He's during that reign of King Josiah, which was between 640 and 609 B.C. Don't worry about the dates. Suffice it to say, we're about one generation out from the fall of the kingdom to the Babylonians. And you remember that because of their sin and departure from the Lord God, God was going to carry them away into Babylon captive. And for 70 years, they were going to be there learning the folly of not following the Lord and learning how hard it is to serve under pagan gods like in Babylon. And yet God promised that after those 70 years, He would bring them again to the land, which of course he did in the time of Cyrus the Persian. Now this Zephaniah was a remarkable man because as the little genealogy in verse 1 indicates, he was a descendant of Hezekiah. The King James says Hezekiah, but in Hebrew it's the same name. And many scholars believe, and the New King James translators seem to believe, and certainly the New Schofield Notes agree with this, and many other reliable commentators, that probably that name is indicated here because we're talking about the King Hezekiah, who would have been the great-great-grandfather of the current king, Josiah. So Josiah and Zephaniah were distant cousins. And to use British terminology, they were both royals, you'll see. So there they were, from the royal family. Now that, of course, puts me in mind of what 1 Corinthians 1 reminds us. Not many wise, not many mighty, not many mobile, noble rather, are chosen. And uh, I remember that a dear sister in the Lord from a past century, I can't recall whether it was Selina, Countess of Huntingdon of the 18th century, or perhaps Lady Powers Court of the 19th century, but one of them said, I'm so glad for that word many in 1 Corinthians 1. Because it indicates that even among the highborn, even among nobility, 
even among people that are in the upper echelon of society, God's grace can still extend there. Just because it's hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven, the Lord Jesus said, with men it's impossible, but with God all things are impossible. And we might think, oh, royals, they don't want to condescend, they don't want to hear anything to do with the gospel. And yet, I'm told by my friends and my brethren in the United Kingdom that even in the days of the Second World War, the King of England at that time was wont to visit an assembly Bible reading in London during the days of the Blitz, partially because they were touring around trying to buck up the morale of the people and seeing all kinds of devastation and many thousands of people killed in the bombings. But when they could, they would go off to the Bible reading to enjoy the teaching of the Word of God there. And on one of their estates in Scotland, there were some dear believers who had the same New Testament convictions that the folks who fellowship here at Boulevard do, and they would meet weekly to break bread. And it is said that on occasion, when he was able, the king would break bread with them there. So you can think how even in modern times, there have been people, not just in the royal family of England, but in other countries I understand as well, who have been real born-again believers through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So it shouldn't shock us that here, even within the royal family, as decadent as things became, as, as tragic as many of the things we'll read about were, there was still here someone of the royal line who had not only believed in the Lord God, but became a spokesman, a prophet, one telling forth God's word to the nation, and he really spoke truth to power, as we'll see. So it's interesting to see the vessels God uses. Now, although the day of the Lord has that near aspect that looks at what was going to happen to Judah and Jerusalem in the near future from Zephaniah's day, there's also, of course, that future element of the day of the Lord. That is even still future to us in the 21st century. Even all these centuries later, we're still looking for many of the day of the Lord prophecies to be fulfilled. And indeed, we'll see when we get to chapter 3 this evening, it sounds like it's far off, but it's a small book. We'll get there in short order. When we get to the end of chapter 3, we'll find out the things that the Lord talks about there are still for a future day. And as an old pop song says from my grandparents' generation, the best is yet to come. And so it will be in the book of Zephaniah. You've got to throw out a bone once in a while, you know, to the senior citizens there, folks. I can't always be quoting uh, all this new stuff. So, anyway... Not that I know much of the new stuff. I'm kind of old myself now, but anyway. <clears throat> Suffice it to say, Zephaniah gets right to the chase, doesn't he? And perhaps it would be helpful if I break down the book for you, first of all, just in a simple outline. You can go from chapter 1, verse 2, not counting the first verse, which is introductory, but from chapter 1, verse 2, all the way to chapter 3, verse 7, is judgment. And then from chapter 3, verse 8, to the end of the book you have blessing. So you notice that roughly two-thirds of the material is devoted to judgment, and a third of it is devoted to blessing. Now you say, that sounds rather negative. Well, it depends how you look at it. If you were living, I quoted and, and spoke concerning Nazi Germany this morning, if you had lived under the Nazis in Nazi Germany, you could look at their empire, and by 1943, maybe 44, let's say, you could certainly see that it was crumbling. 
you could certainly see that things were amiss. After the Normandy invasion, the handwriting was on the wall. Though there was much bloody fighting and many lives taken, the Germans were in retreat and there were cities being destroyed systematically and repeatedly. If you were in Nazi Germany at that time, you could look at that two ways. If you were a Nazi, committed to the ideology of Adolf Hitler, believing in the Third Reich, thinking that this was going to be a new empire, a new paradise on earth, you'd be sad because you'd say this is coming to an end. But if you were a Jewish person in a concentration camp like Auschwitz or Dachau, or you were a Slavic person who had been invaded by the Nazis, or a Scandinavian person whose countries had been invaded by the Nazis, or a Dutch person whose country had been invaded and, and occupied by the Nazis. You'd have a different view of it, wouldn't you? You'd say, this is terrific. Come on, bring on the planes, bring on the bombs, do whatever you have to do, bring an end to this empire which keeps us under the thraldom, under the bondage that is keeping us from being free. So it is with this world that a lot of people today don't want to think about the judgment of God. They think that's negative. They think that's bad. We don't want to think about the judgment of God. But I tell you, if God had no judgment, he really wouldn't be worth knowing. He wouldn't be worth worshiping. He certainly wouldn't be worth loving. Because a God who allows the evil to go on that has gone on in the history of our world and never brings it to an end and never calls people to account for it would indeed not be a good God. He would be a moral monster. But I tell you, God's not like that. God is good and beautiful. He loves his human beings. He feels it keenly whenever any of them is murdered, when one is abused, when one is mistreated, when one lives in poverty that they ought not to because of the evil of other people. He feels keenly what happens to this planet. And although he sent his son to die for sin so that we all, could escape judgment if we receive the Lord Jesus. Eventually it's going to come to pass that if people don't avail themselves of the payment made by the Lord Jesus Christ, they are going to find themselves being overtaken by the wrath of God. Of course, that need not be. Because God wants to bless this world. God wants to make this world a paradise. Now, this world being a paradise is not a world where we can do whatever we want. You can even see that in secular literature, can't you? Did you have to read The Lord of the Flies in high school? William Golding's famous novel of the mid-20th century? You remember these kids get through a plane crash on this desert island, and I'm not necessarily recommending the book by this illustration, but I had to read it, so there you are. I mean, it's there in my brain, and that's what I thought of when I was thinking about this. So I'm limited on illustrations. Bear with me. But these kids basically become their own little society. And they have to start their own civilization. And, and the book is kind of a parable of what happens to human beings and of choices they make. And the interesting thing is, initially, there's this great elation. Wow! No grown-ups to tell us what to do. No adults, no school. Oh, think about that. And it seems like paradise. But then, after a while, kind of midway through the thing, they realize, you know, rules are good. They protect us. And there are certain things that grown-ups do for us that are very salutary and, and 
Even the one character I remember, he's rubbing his tongue over his teeth saying, you know, I even could stand a toothbrush. <laughs> he probably never liked to brush his teeth when he was told he must. But after being on a desert island for a while, I'm sure coconuts are rough on the enamel. You know, I, I wish I had a toothbrush. And although they start out thinking, this is going to be terrific, we're on our own, we can do what we want, it ends up being a nightmare. It ends up that many of them do some pretty terrible things in the book. And it's the same with our world. Look at what men consider freedom and how they say, I want to be free to indulge what I want. You know, sometimes God judges not by stopping us from doing what we want. He judges by letting us do what we want. Romans 1 calls it giving us over. And, of course, that's what happens. The people say, God, we want to do this, we want to do this, we want to do this. We don't want to think about you. We want to be free to live the way we want. God says, all right, I'll let you do that. But it ends up being self-destructive. And it ends up making the world not a paradise, not a utopia, but a dystopia. A place which is a nightmare to be in. Now the Lord, uh, Zephaniah's first oracle of judgment that begins in verse 2, as I say, really cuts to the chase. The Lord says there, I will utterly consume everything from the face of the land. I'll consume man and beast. I'll consume the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea. We remember before that God in Genesis had a global judgment, a worldwide flood. But in that judgment, he doesn't talk about destroying the fish of the sea. This is an even more extensive house cleaning of planet Earth, if you will. That God is talking about a massive renovating judgment. And he starts globally and on the big macro scale, and he brings it down to the wicked in verse 3, and I'll cut off man from the face of the land, says the Lord. And verse 4 he says, I'll stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Now there were probably some people hearing the message that were getting happy until he got to verse 4. Because they said, oh, that's lovely. When God's talking about judging somebody else, we like that, you know? When it's our brother or our sister getting the spanking, and it's not us in trouble, we might smile. Oh, hopefully mom or dad doesn't see us, but, you know, we might not cry too many tears if our siblings get in trouble. But when it's us, it's another thing. And he says it's not just the nations, it's not just the world out there, it's Judah and Jerusalem I'm going to judge. Well, is that really warranted? I mean, aren't we the covenant people of the Lord? Well, look at what he says in verse 4. I'll cut off every trace of Baal from this place. Now, the name Baal just means master, but of course it was a proper name for an idol. And there were different Baals associated with different geographic sites, just like today there are different shrines to the Virgin in different geographical places. So you could talk about the, the Virgin of Guadalupe or the Virgin of Lourdes or Fatima or whatever. They considered certain areas to have certain deities or places where that deity was more powerful. And consistently through Israel's history, including this time in Judah, there were people over and over that would go back to worshiping Baal. Chiefly because of two things. Baal was a storm god and Baal was a fertility god. Now, those two things go together because they were agrarian economies. They were farmers. And if you wanted your crops to come up well, you prayed to Baal, according to their mythology anyway. And Baal would give you good crops, and your business would go well. So it's all about the Benjamins, you know, dollar, dollar bill, y'all. And it's about your business doing well. 
That's what Baal worship is about. But there was also a Beatles aspect to it. All you need is love. Because Baal being able to make crops fertile was also able to make people fertile. And in worshiping Baal, there were unspeakable acts of immorality committed, and yet people could feel holy about their immorality. Just like some people today <coughs> pardon me, commit fornication or even adultery, and they say, well, God won't judge me for this because God's a God of love, and certainly God wants me to be happy. No, please, that is sin. That is not true happiness. That is not true joy. That is the pleasure of sin for a season, which is fleeting, and it's self-destructive, and it's harmful and destructive toward others, toward the defrauded spouse, toward any children that are involved, toward the church testimony that any such person might be involved with, toward the people around them. It is a terrible, corrosive sin. So none of this rubbish about God being a God of love who lets us go out and sin and still feel spiritual about it. And yet there it was in Jerusalem. And God says, I'm going to cut off the name of Baal from this place. Then he says, the names of the idolatrous priests. Now, that is the word kemarim, which if you speak Spanish, you know kemar is to burn. In Portuguese, I understand, kemar is also to burn. And that had the idea that these were people that burned incense to false gods. We only get the word one other time in the Hebrew Old Testament. I think it's Second Kings 22, talking about this same time period. So there were people there that were worshiping false gods. But then the second group there in the same phrase of verse 4 says, with the pagan priests in the New King James. And they vitalized pagan there because really in the original text what it says is, with the priests. And it uses the regular word Kohanim. If you have any friends named Cohen, supposedly they're descended from Levi. Supposedly they're of the priestly tribe because the name Cohen in Hebrew, or Kohen as they say, means priest. Now I think this is disturbing. The New King James translators put in the word pagan because they're figuring it's just another variety of the same type of thing as the Kemarim, another type of pagan priest. But I believe based on what he's about to say that really this is a case of true priests, true people who were descended from Aaron, who instead of worshiping the Lord, were involved in the worship of these false gods. Notice what it says in verse 5. Those who worship the host of heaven, so astrology is very old, and those who worship and swear oaths by the Lord, but who also swear by Milcom. And some manuscripts actually say Malcolm, but I don't think there's any connection with anything in Boulevard with that. But Milcom being uh, that God also known as Kamosh, a terrible, or also called Molech, a terrible idol that people would sacrifice their children to in the Old Testament. Can you imagine that? Somebody who says, oh, I'm a believer in Jehovah, the God of Israel, eh, but I've got to cover my bases. After all, I also say the odd prayer to this God, Milcom, too. Thing is, God says, thou shalt have no other gods before me. He doesn't want any rivals. And so this was a terrible admixture of error. It's what they call syncretism, mixing the false and the true. And he says, those who've turned back from following the Lord. So there's apostasy here. And have not sought the Lord nor inquired of Him. So there were some who had known about the Lord, but now they turned from Him. And there were some who hadn't bothered to ask what the Lord thought about anything. Well, verse 7 hits it. It says, Be silent in the presence of the Lord God. For the day of the Lord is at hand. 
For the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has invited his guests. His guests aren't coming to eat. They're coming to be judged, actually, here. It shall be in the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes and the king's children, verse 8, and all such as are clothed with foreign apparel. It's a solemn thing when God rises up to judge. And over and over the Bible tells us that all flesh will be silent when God rises up to do this. There's a period of time where they'll cry out, where they'll say, let the mountains and the rocks fall on us. But there comes a time when they have to say, I place my hand over my mouth. I have no excuse. As Romans chapter 3 tells us, all the mouth of the world will be stopped, that all may become guilty before God. Well, it starts at the upper end of society with the princes and the king's children. And he mentions all who are clothed with foreign apparel. Now, please, don't reach around and check the tag on your shirt. Doubtless, it was probably made in Taiwan or Malaysia or some such place. And I don't want you to feel self-conscious about that because he's not talking about the global economy. What he is talking about is trying to be like the rest of the world. You see, God has always had in mind for his people being separate being different from the world. And the problem here was the princes and the kings of Israel looked at the, or in Judah in this case, looked at the nations round about them and wanted to be like them. So they started dressing like the other countries around. They wanted to be like the other nations around them. And God says, I'm going to judge them for it. There was also worse things happening, verse 9. In the same day I'll punish all those who leap over the threshold who fill their master's houses with violence and deceit. I used to think that leaping over the threshold might have a tie-in to 1 Samuel 5 when they leapt over the threshold of the temple god of Dagon. But contextually here, I think it makes more sense, as many believe, that we're talking about people who come breaking into houses and stealing stuff. Good old B&E, breaking and entering. At least that's what they call it on law and order. So anyway, you know, you had this happening. So God says, here's what's going to be. There shall be on that day, verse 10, a mournful cry from the fish gate. Now he's going through different neighborhoods of Jerusalem. A wailing from the second quarter. That was a very nice neighborhood. That was a very nice place to live. And then he says, and a loud crashing from the hills. That's the area around about the city. And then he says, wail you inhabitants of Maktesh. Now, a Maktesh in Hebrew is like a big depression, sort of a big crater in the ground. And it seems from what archaeologists tell us that there used to be a market there, that that used to be a place of business, of mercantile trading. So it was kind of like the Wall Street of ancient Judah. Greed is good, right? Yeah, that's what you should think here. That the judgment is coming to Jerusalem and God is going to judge these people Even all the merchant people are cut down, verse 11. All those who handle money are cut off. There's coming a time when the ticker tape stops, when you're not buying and selling and trading, when the economy isn't going to be the thing. The thing will be the coming of the presence of God. (coughs) It happened in ancient Judah. It's going to happen one day to our country and to the whole world when the Lord comes back in judgment to this world. Well, he goes on and talks about the terrible things that were happening, but you look at this, and in verse 12, it's significant that he tells them, it'll come to pass that time that I'll search Jerusalem with lamps. Now, there was an ancient cynic philosopher named Diogenes, actually the founder of the cynics, who said, 
he would search with a lamp and see if there was any man who desired wisdom. Well, here, God is coming with a lamp too, but he wants to see if anybody cares about truth. And he says, these men are settled on their leaves. Now, it's an illustration taken from ancient viticulture that if you were making wine, if you didn't move that wine from barrel to barrel, the sediment from the crushed up grapes would settle down in the bottom of the jars and the wine would spoil and taste awful. You know, like Thunderbird or whatever. I don't know what a cheap wine is. But anyway, there it was. He says, that's what the people are here. They're jars that haven't been poured from one to another. And Isaiah actually uses the same illustration of an earlier generation in Israel. What is he talking about? He's talking about complacency. He's talking about apathy. People that just can't be bothered to think about God, or if they think about Him, they can't be bothered to change their lives. So he says, their goods shall become booty, their houses a desolation, they'll build houses but not inhabit them, they'll plant vineyards but not drink their wine. And there, that's a direct quote from Deuteronomy 28, that portion of Deuteronomy where God lists the curses for Israel. If you're obedient to the Lord, blessing Israel. If you're disobedient, I'm going to do this to you. Well, all these centuries later, we're talking about more than 600 years later, God is saying, see, I told you that's what I'm going to do, and I'm about to do it to you. God gives us warning, and God is long-suffering, but his long-suffering has an end, and the judgment comes. So he says, the great day of the Lord is near, it's near and hastens quickly, and so forth. It's a day of wrath, verse 15, a day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and alarm against the fortified cities and against the high towers. Here is coming an invasion, in other words, and it's going to bring great wrath to Judah. So the Lord says in chapter 2, verse 1, gather yourselves together. Yes, gather together, O undesirable Nation, or we could translate it, O nation not desired. Who would want you? Who would want a nation so unfaithful, so spiritually adulterous, so evil, so loving of wickedness, so destitute and devoid of the truth? Who would want you? Gather yourselves together. Get together. And now you think, man, here comes the crushing blow, right? He's going to get them all together in one place. And nuke them. That's going to be it. But praise be to God, even in a book like this, two-thirds of which talks about the judgment aspect of the day of the Lord, the Lord says here, before the decree is issued, verse 2, or the day passes like chaff, before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you, seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth who have upheld his justice, seek righteousness, seek humility, it may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Now that's gospel language. That's God saying to them, I've got every right to wipe you out. I've got every right to come and judge you. You deserve it. You've got it coming. And I've warned you about it. But even now, even at this late date, if you'd repent if you'd humble yourself, if you'd seek the Lord and say, Lord, save me a sinner. Everything you've said about me is right. I own it. I take possession of that. And I say, you're right. The indictment is absolutely 100% correct about me. 
Even now, though, Lord, I throw myself on Your mercy. I cast myself on You. Save me a sinner. Not too long before this, there was a wicked city called Nineveh. And a strange prophet came with seaweed around his head and whatnot. And who knows how he looked at after being in the ocean for three days and three nights in the belly of a whale. But there he was, Jonah, coming into the city. Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be destroyed. No gospel warning. And yet those pagan people turned from their sins, humbled themselves, said maybe, even though he hasn't told us, we know God's a good God. We know He's a compassionate God. We know He loves to save. Maybe He'll save us. Maybe He'll spare us. And God saved that city, even to the consternation of Jonah the prophet. Isn't that lovely? God even reserves the right to override His preachers to do greater things in His mercy. Well, He gives them this gospel warning. And then lest you think he's picking on his fair-haired boy, but after all, this is a principle of God. 1 Peter 4 tells us the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. You remember in Revelation that he starts in the first three chapters judging the church, evaluating their service, and then he turns to the world. So this is always how God has been in his methodology. But now God turns to the nations round about them. And you can read it for yourself, but chapter 2, he looks to the various points on the compass, first to the west, to Philistia, to the city-states of the Philistines, and he pronounces judgment against them. And then, of course, he pronounces judgment to the east. He looks at Moab and Ammon, and he says he's going to judge them because they've become like Sodom and Gomorrah, which is ironic because if you read Genesis 18 and 19, that's how those nations came to be. In the aftermath of Sodom and Gomorrah's destruction, it was the failure of Lot and his daughters and the incestual sin committed there, incestuous sin committed there, that brought about those nations of Moab and, and of uh, Ammon. And so God is going to judge them because he says, you know what, you've become worse or as bad as the people that I saved your patriarch from. And then he turns, of course, to look at the south. In verse 12, he refers to the Ethiopians down there in Africa, a great empire in the ancient world. And finally, to the north, in verse 13, when he speaks about Assyria and Nineveh. Though he spared them in the day of Jonah the prophet, the contemporary prophet of Zephaniah, Nahum, would pronounce judgment on that place. And indeed, that came to pass in 612. Why? Because they had that idea. They said, verse 15, I am it, and there's none beside me. In other words, I am the greatest city on earth. Look at me. I am so great, I'm never going to fall. When I hear so many people say the United States is the greatest nation on earth, and we're never going to fall, I shudder. Because that's the kind of language that precedes a terrible, terrible judgment. And God knows we deserve it in this country. But may God save many more people ere the judgment comes. Now, when you come to chapter 3, verse 1, you might think that he's continuing on with his indictment against Nineveh, or maybe he's talking about another city like Babylon, for example. He says, Woe to her who is a rebellious and polluted and oppressing city. She's not obeyed his voice. She's not received correction. Uh, correction rather. She's not trusted in the Lord. She has not drawn near to her God. Now, that language is key. This is not a pagan city he's talking about. 
He's talking about Jerusalem again. You have the Lord as your God, and yet you've not listened to Him. You've not obeyed His correction. You've got these princes who are just people that extort from people, and judges that are looking for a bribe, and prophets that are proud and deceiving. But yet, even though all these people, and he includes the priests there, polluting the sanctuary in verse 4, and doing violence to the law, even with that, he says, verse 5, the Lord is righteous in her midst. He will do no unrighteousness. Every morning he brings his justice to light. He never fails. In other words, as bad as things became in the chosen nation that God had for himself, God's standards never lowered. God never changed. God never became dirtied by their disobedience. He maintained his standard. And in the darkest portions of church history, right up to the present day, I'm so thankful that the Lord in the midst is righteous, that he is never tainted by the departure, by the failure, by the error that we see all around us. But rather, he says, I have cut off nations, verse 6. Their fortresses are devastated. I've made their streets desolate with none passing by. Their cities are destroyed. There's no one, no inhabited. I said, surely you will fear me. Don't you look at what I've done to other nations? Don't you look at the judgment of these other places? Surely that will move you to reverence me. You will receive instruction so that her dwelling would not be cut off despite everything for which I punished her. But they rose early and corrupted all their deeds. They looked at the judgment of God on others and it didn't at all speak to them. It didn't tell them, change your ways. It didn't tell them, repent. It didn't tell them, seek the Lord. They rather continued and got worse. Therefore, verse 8, wait for me, says the Lord, until the day I rise up for plunder. My determination is to gather the nations to my assembly of kingdoms. I'll pour on them my indignation, all my fierce anger. All the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. So I'm just going to get the nations together and pour out my judgment, says God. And the way it sounds there, you think to yourself, Israel and Judah will be included in that. They will be utterly destroyed. Till you come to verse 9. For then I will restore to the peoples a pure language. Now this is the blessing section of the book. And here's the beautiful thing. It is true God is one day going to judge the earth. It is true God is going to put down evil. But God has never been about just wiping out planet Earth. If that was how he wanted to do things, he could have done that millennia ago, after all. But God has always been about judging and removing evil that he might replace it with righteousness. That he might replace the gloom and the darkness with glory. So here he speaks about restoring the peoples to a pure language that they may call on the name of the Lord. Do you remember when people's languages were divided? Genesis 11, Tower of Babel, a great rebellion against the Lord. And God confused the languages there in mercy, actually, although in judgment, to keep them from doing something worse in their misbegotten unity, in their erring ecumenicism that brought them together. And he confused their tongue. But now he's going to restore to them a pure tongue. Why? That they may call on the name of the Lord. Not just Judah and Israel, but all the nations to come worship the Lord. To serve Him with one accord. They're standing shoulder to shoulder is the image. Serving Him. 
from beyond the rivers of Ethiopia. Now, chapter 2, he talks about Ethiopia, and he says, I'm going to use my sword against her. Now he says out of Ethiopia, people are going to come from there to worship. My worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. And that day you'll not be shamed for any of your deeds in which you transgress against me. For then I will take away from your midst those who rejoice in your pride, and there shall no longer be haught, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. Here is a people that is purified. This is like the Lord saying, Your sins and iniquities I will remember no more, and I will write on your hearts and on your minds my law. Here is a new kind of people, not that come to the mount as they did to Jeremiah and say the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. Look at these things. God won't judge us because we've got the temple. God says, I'm going to knock that temple down. You know, we have to be careful that we're always humble before the Lord. That's what God desires of man. That's what he told Micah. What does the Lord desire of thee? That you might walk humbly before your God. Here there is a humble people. And he says, verse 12, I will leave in your midst a meek and humble people, and they shall trust in the name of the Lord. Not in the name of Baal. Not in the name of Milcom. Not in the name of some other god. They'll trust in the name of the Lord. And the remnant of Israel shall do no unrighteousness and speak no lies, nor shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth, for they'll feed their flocks and lie down, and no one shall make them afraid. What a placid, wonderful bucolic view of things. Rather pastoral, like Beethoven's pastoral symphony. Uh, Quite a beautiful image there of the flocks lying down. Well, that brings me to a song. No, I'm not going to sing. Don't worry. Verse 14. Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your judgments. He's cast out your enemy. The King of Israel, the Lord is in your midst, and you shall see disaster no more. Isn't that wonderful? All those times they were invaded, all those times they were conquered, all the times that they've been subjugated by other peoples, even to this day, with all of the unrest that is in Jerusalem and in Israel and in that whole region, let alone our whole world, this is going to be the time of the Prince of Peace ruling, and the King of Israel will be in the midst of them. He'll be right in the center. He'll be dwelling among his people in that millennial kingdom to come, that thousand-year reign of Christ that we read about in Revelation 20. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Do not fear. Zion, let not your hands be weak. The Lord your God in your midst, the Mighty One, He will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He'll quiet you with His love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Now, we sing a lot to the Lord, and it's a lovely thing to do. It's biblical. Let him that is joyful sing songs. We are to praise the Lord with the fruit of our lips, to bring to him hymns of praise. But here it's the Lord singing over us. It's like one of our old hymns says, Hark, my soul, thy Savior sings. Catch the joy that carol brings. (laughs) The Lord is going to sing over his people Israel. And you know, he's going to sing and declare his name to the church as well, according to Hebrews 2. I will gather those who sorrow over the appointed assembly who are among you, to whom its reproach is a burden. Behold, at that time I'll deal with all who afflict you. I will save the lame, praise God, 
and gather those who were driven out. I will appoint them for praise and fame in every land where they've been put to shame. What's he talking about? All those years you said next year in Jerusalem, all those years you wanted to come up to the temple and worship God in the way he had appointed according to the feasts of Jehovah and according to the sacrifices, or in our era, all that time when you wanted to see the Lord's Supper celebrated and to enter into it and enjoy it spiritually the way the Lord wanted it and to see your fellow believers enter into it and enjoy it the way they wanted it. This is coming the time when there's going to be no impediment to the worship and service of our God. Rather, he's going to gather the weak. He's going to gather his people. Their name won't be reproached. This is not the time now of persecution. This is the time where I'll gather those who are driven out, verse 19. I'll appoint them for praise and fame in every land where they were put to shame. At that time, I'll bring you back. Even at that time, I'll gather you. For I will give you fame and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I return your captives before your eyes, says the Lord. This is what God wants to do. He wants to regather His people and use that nation of Judah and Israel as a beacon to the whole world and make them the focal point of blessing, not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles, to all the nations of the earth. And even though we're in the church age where Israel is set aside, I tell you, God's never given up on this plan. God is going to do it. And we in the church are going to share with Him. We're going to rule and reign with the Lord Jesus. We're going to enjoy this glorious kingdom too. It's a different day coming, brothers and sisters. It's going to be wonderful. But this prophecy, this look at the future, this revealing of God's plan, is meant to have practical effect on daily life. And what we're going to see on Wednesday is, it becomes the catalyst for changing everything in Judah, at least for a few decades. Things are turned around, and the truth of God is reclaimed, and many become believers, and many are restored to the Lord, and great things happen. You know, it's not above our God, it's not beyond His capability, to do the same thing in our day. We have to look to God's Word and we act in accordance with it and trust in our God. And He can revive. He can save. He can bless. That's His nature. Father, we're thankful for Thy dear people. We pray bless them. Carry them home in safety. We ask in Thy will. In the Lord Jesus' name. Amen.